So I'm going to read um, the passage that we're looking at. It's John chapter 6, um, and we're going to start at verse 1. And it's on page 1069, if you've got one of the blue Bibles. Looking at John chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that's the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing those who were ill. Then Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves, two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with pieces of five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountainside by himself. Let me pray as we unpack this together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks to us, and we thank you that you give us God your word. Um, and Lord, we pray now that as we read your word, that you would speak to us and you would point us in the direction of your son, that we would see him more clearly. Um, Lord, we pray that we would have open hearts and open minds as we listen to this, and we pray, Lord, that we would see Jesus as a result. Amen. I'm going to take you on a journey as we start. We're all keen to get away from Storm Dennis. It's cold and it's wet outside, so we're going to go on a journey to the beach. Imagine the temperature is 40 degrees. Fortunately, this is a four-dimensional illustration, and we've actually cranked the temperature right up in here. So imagine it's hot, and we're in the car, we're driving to the beach, you've got John Denver country roads playing on the radio, you've got your sunglasses on, wind in your hair, you can see over the horizon, you can see the sea meeting the sky, and you see a great big sign, and it says beach, five kilometres that way. Great. Pull up the car, and you get out. Get your surfboard out the back, put it on the side of the road, maybe get your deck chair out, sit back. Look back, enjoy the view, stand on the surfboard, maybe try a little bit, practice on the grassy bank on the side of the road. You'd say, what are you doing? Why are you stopping at the sign? Why are you getting out at the sign when the sign is pointing to something so much greater? This sign is telling you that there's a beach over there. Why would you get out when you see the sign? You see, a sign always points you to something greater. A sign always points you to something greater. And here in John chapter 6, we're looking and we see a sign. And there are loads of signs in John's Gospel. This isn't the first one. 
We've seen several as we've been going through. You might remember in John chapter 2, we saw Jesus turn water into wine. We saw the healing of the official son. We saw the healing of the paralyzed man. And all of these things are signs that are pointing us to something greater. John shows us this. The, um, the author of the gospel shows us this in chapter 2. Um, don't worry about turning there, but 2 verse 11, a couple of pages back, he says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee, this is turning the water into wine, what Jesus did here was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. You see, all of these things were signs, but they're pointing to something greater. And that thing greater is the lordship of Jesus Christ, the glory of Jesus Christ. And so here, as we read chapter 6 in John, or the first part of chapter 6, we see an amazing sign. But I wonder if you spotted it. I wonder if you saw it as we were reading, because... I don't know about you, but if you were writing a, about a story this miraculous, you might give it more attention than this. Do you see it there, hiding in verse 11? In this great narrative, we see just one verse, a simple verse. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated. That's all it says. There's no kind of spectacular fanfare, no kind of great speech from Jesus telling us that this is so amazing. There's no, there's no additional kind of flares or, or um, triumphant entry or anything like that. And that's because this is not a show. This is a sign. What we see here is a sign that is pointing to something greater. This is not a show. And I think there are a number of ways that we can, we can miss out on where a sign is pointing us. So as we see this sign, there, there are things that we can do that mean that we won't quite see where it's pointing to us. Because some of us will look at this and we'll, we'll think it's irrelevant. You'll see a sign and you, and you think it's irrelevant. If I'm driving along the road and I see the sign to the beach, but I'm on my way to work, I'm just going to ignore it. And I'll never see the glory to which it's pointing down on the golden sands and the waves down below. And here we might think that this is just a guy handing out bread in Israel 2,000 years ago. Why is that relevant to me? We think it's irrelevant, so we go straight past. Or maybe we see a sign and we try and kind of point it to ourselves. We see something like this and we, we try and find the thing that we relate to most in there and we make that the thing about the sign. And so as we're reading this passage, I don't know who you related to most. Maybe it was the the unnamed boy in verse 9 who has the loaves and fish. And we say, oh, I can relate to him. The one with not very much stuff. Oh, okay, so the message in this sign must be, well, what are the loaves and fish that I can bring to God? What are, what are the things that I can bring before God? And we, we turn this sign and we point it to ourselves. Now, don't hear me wrong here. If we, if we bring things before God, he will do miraculous things and he, will, he, will, he asks us to bring everything to him, right? But if we look at this sign and we point it to ourselves, there's a danger that we will miss where it's pointing. So we might think it's irrelevant. We might try and point it to ourselves. Or we might make the sign the most important thing. And if we make the sign itself the most important thing, if we get out at the sign to the beach and we get our surfboard out, then we're going to miss where the sign is pointing. I wonder if you um, know the story of how Isaac Newton discovered gravity. Myth has it, he was sitting down in the garden, sitting under an apple tree, and an apple fell from the tree, and he had a kind of eureka moment. 
Apple falling down. Apple, bigger, smaller. Earth, bigger. There must be gravity. And a few tens of years later, hypotheses went round, and we had the theory of gravity as it is today. See, that apple was a sign to Isaac Newton of gravity. Now, I wonder if you knew that there are seven Isaac Newton apple trees still existing in the UK. These are trees that people believe are directly descending from Isaac Newton, the tree that Isaac Newton was sitting under. And if you want, you can go to one of these places with an Isaac Newton apple tree and you can pay £45.99 for an apple. <laughs> right? £45.99 for an apple. You see, people are so obsessed with the sign that they're willing to spend £45.99 on an apple. If we focus on the sign, we lose sight of what it was pointing to. Gravity, the thing that holds our solar system together. The thing that holds the atoms together. The thing that keeps our planet in orbit. If we focus on the sign, we can lose sight of where it's, po- we can lose sight of where it's pointing. So as we dig into this passage, as we pick through this astonishing sign that Jesus performs, have a think about which one of those three camps you might be most likely to fall into. Are you not sure that Jesus is relevant? Do you think, do you think it might all be irrelevant? Or are you someone who's tempted maybe to point these signs towards yourself? Is your faith, is your experience of Jesus more important to you than who he might be? Or are you someone that gets so excited by the signs, by the things he does, that you lose sight of the one who gives them? You're so, so eager to receive the things that the giver can give that you lose sight of the one who's giving them. In verse 2, we meet a crowd. And they, this crowd, we're told, are in that final group of people. We're told that this crowd, they've been following Jesus for a, for a while. The, the, the word in here is these people followed him. There's a sense in the, in the translation that this is a following. There are people that have been following him for a long time. And they're following him because of the signs he had performed by healing, healing those who are ill. You see, these people, they see the healings and they want more of it. Right? They bring their relatives to come and see him. They're chasing after him and they're chasing after more and more. And they, they love what he's doing. You see, they see the sign and they're getting excited by it. And so as we look at this passage, we've got to bear in mind that Jesus is giving these people a sign that is pointing them to something greater. So where is this sign pointing? We're going to see um, three things. We're going to see that this is a sign that points to human limitation This is a sign that points to Jesus as the Son, and this is a sign that is pointing to abundance forever. It's a sign that points to human limitation, it's a sign that points to Jesus as the Son, and it's a sign that points to abundance forever. So first of all, it's a sign pointing to human limitation. He sets up, Jesus sets up this miracle in verse 5, doesn't he, with with a question where should we get bread for all these people to eat? This is a rhetorical question, isn't it? He's not actually asking for ways or means. He's not asking for resources. He's saying, he's just teeing that. He's putting it there as a test. We see that in verse 6. He asked this only to test Philip, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. So Jesus tees it up with this question, and he asks it as a test. But when we see this word test, I don't think this is a kind of test of Philip's faith. He's not putting it there to say, Philip, will you trust me or not? Yes or no? 
are you going to come with me or are you going to not? We do see Jesus do that to people at different points in the Bible, but I don't think that's quite what he means by test here. He's testing Philip's thinking. He's asking Philip to stretch his limited mind from the resources that he has in front of him and say, how are we going to feed these people? You can almost hear the twinkle in Jesus' eye as he, he puts this question before him. And he says, have a think. How might we go about this? And the responses of Philip and then Andrew lay so starkly the human limitation, don't they, that they, ha- that they experience. They don't have enough money and they don't have enough food. Philip replies, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to even have a bite. What do you mean, where are we going to get money to buy all these people food? It's going to cost thousands of pounds to give them even one of those little like communion wafer bite things. It's, there's, we don't have enough money to feed all these people. It says there's 5,000 men there. There's probably seven, ten thousand 10,000 people in total. How are we possibly going to afford that, Philip says? We don't have enough money to buy food for these people. And then Andrew follows it up by pointing to a lack of food. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far are they going to go among so many? The emphasis on the pitiful, weak resources is really strong, isn't it? Small loaves, small fish, five loaves between thousands of people. We don't have enough food. And he's almost embarrassed, isn't he? How far far is that going to go? I don't know. So these, these disciples are limited. And the point here is that if the disciples had to feed all these people, they need resources from outside. They need to be provided for. They need money. They need food. They can't do it in and of themselves. They're limited. This is a sign pointing to human limitation. And I wonder how often we do what the disciples did here. I wonder how often we look at our limitations, we look at our resources, and we focus almost more on the limitations and the resources, limitations of our resources, when we're trying to think about what we can do than what Jesus could do. We look to ourselves rather than to the man standing right beside us who could do miraculous things. I know I am definitely, definitely susceptible to this. I try to be competent, I try to do it myself, and yet if I look to Jesus and I look to his strength, who knows what could, what could be done? And so in verses 5 to 7, we see that this sign is a sign pointing to human limitation. And there'll be a number among us here who don't yet quite know what they make of Jesus. And maybe when you hear about some of the stuff that, that we Christians say Jesus has done, we talk about things like feeding 5,000 people, turning water into wine, rising from the dead, and you think, hmm, there's no way a man could do that. <laughs> There is no way that that could be true because I don't know a man that could do that. In a sense, you're right. In a sense, you're absolutely right to think that. There is no way a man could do that. And this sign is pointing us to the limitations of humans. So there is no way a man could do that. So where could the sign be pointing? Because Jesus did it. Jesus did these things. And so as we see the limitation of humans, we see that this sign points us to Jesus as the Son. So this sign points us to human limitation and it points us to Jesus, the Son. And it points us to the fact that Jesus, the Son, can do what the Father can do. I don't know if you were were here a couple of weeks ago when we looked through the first part of um, chapter 5 
And we looked at this section from 16 through to 31. And Jesus made an outrageous claim in chapter 5, verse 19. Do you remember it? Look over the page with me. It's right there. Jesus gave this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So Jesus says this. He says, I'm the Son, and by the way, I can do what the Father can do. And that is an outrageous claim. And that is a claim that you have to back up. See, if you make a claim, you have to back it up. Um, When I was at university, um, some of my friends and I used to play a game called Eyebrows. I don't know if anyone's heard the game Eyebrows. Got some knowing looks from the students. So eyebrows is a very, very straightforward game, right? You make a claim, you have to prove the claim. If you can't prove the claim, you lose an eyebrow, right? <laughs> so if you, it's to stop, like, it's to stop people make, going a bit, getting a bit ahead of themselves. You know, oh, I could beat you ten nil at FIFA or whatever. You say you make a claim, you have to prove the claim. If you don't prove it, you lose an eyebrow because you look foolish if you don't back up your claims. Definitely, if you're walking around with one eyebrow. But if you make a claim, you have to back it up. And Jesus made this claim in 5 verse 19 that he can do what the Father can do. And here he backs it up with this miraculous sign. This sign shows us that Jesus is the one that can do the Father can do, do what the Father can do. And he shows us that in two ways. He shows us through the timing and what it is he does. First of all, the timing is important. Look at verse 4. The Jewish Passover festival was near. Why is that included? I don't know if you felt it as we were reading it through. Did it feel a bit random? Oh, you know, nearly Easter time. Seems like a bit of a strange comment to add in a passage like this, doesn't it? Well, no, it's important because the Passover is one of the most important seminal moments in the the Jewish calendar, in the Israelite calendar. And to understand why this is important, we need to understand what the Passover festival is all about. See, thousands of years earlier... The Israelites were stuck in Egypt. They were trapped in Egypt under the rule of someone called Pharaoh, or a Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, we're told that his heart was hard and against God, and he oppressed the Israelites. So the Israelites were suffering, they were tortured, they were in slavery in Egypt. And then one day, God said Moses to go and get his people out of Egypt. And Moses goes to Pharaoh, he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And so God sent through Moses a number of plagues. He sent the plague of locusts. He sent boils. He sent blood. He, sent, he killed the cattle. He sent flies. And every time Moses said, let my people go, and Pharaoh said no, until the final plague. The final plague was the plague on the firstborn. Now this was a plague where God promised that every, the firstborn son of every house in Egypt would die. And when he said that this plague was going to come, he gave instructions to the Israelites that you need to sacrifice a lamb and you need to put the, la- the blood of that lamb on your doorposts. And lo and behold, they did that. And when the, part, when the plague came through Egypt, it swept through all the households in Egypt. And the firstborn son in every household died, apart from those with the blood on the doorposts. And the plague passed over those households. And the firstborn of all of God's people was saved. And so the day after this plague, Pharaoh said to the Israelites, you can go, you're free, go and worship your God, get out of here. 
And that was the day that the Israelites were free. After years of oppression and slavery and torture and suffering, the Israelites were finally free from Egypt. And it was on that day, on that day when they thought of the Passover, of the um, plague over their households, that this festival, the Passover festival, was written into Israelite law and tradition. Turn with me to Exodus 13. So Exodus 13 is where this has all happened. And this is where we see the detail of what the Passover festival looks like. And Jesus gives them the instructions for the Passover. They've got to eat unleavened bread for a week. And then at the end of that week, they have a celebration. And if you look at Exodus 13, verse 8, Moses says to the Israelites, he says, On that day, on the Passover day, tell your son, I do this, because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. We do this because of what God has done. We do the Passover, the Israelites do the Passover, to remember what God has done. And so as we get back to John chapter 6, and we see that this is happening at the time of the Passover, we know that this is happening at a time when God's people are remembering the things that God can do. Right? This is happening at the time when God's people are remembering the things that God can do. So the timing is really important. And then the second thing that's important is what he does. What Jesus does. What he does is he miraculously provides for the people. He miraculously provides food for the people. Now, I wonder if you've ever thought why he might do this sign. Why at this point does he go and make bread and fish and multiply it and provide and provide and provide? Why does he do that? Why doesn't he do something like really cool? Why doesn't he like make a fireball come in the sky and really be like, I am God and tell everyone what's going on? Well, he does this precisely because it is something that the Father has previously done. See, on this day, when the Israelites are remembering what God can do, Jesus goes and does what the Father has previously done. Because as we heard earlier, God is the one that provided manna in the desert for the Israelites. You see, miraculous provision of food is a God thing. That's what God does. So just after the original Passover festival, the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness and God gave them manna. It rained down on the ground and they ate and they ate. And here we go, thousands of years on, Jesus, at the Passover time, when the Israelites are remembering what God can do, goes and does it again, provides bread. And so at this time, when the Israelites remember what God can do, Jesus goes and does what God has already done. You see where this sign is pointing? It's pointing to Jesus as the Son. And so for those of us here who are tempted to think that these signs are irrelevant... We're tempted to think about the, the bread being handed out on the, the shore of the um, Sea of Galilee and think, that's so long ago, so far away, what's that got to do with me? Well, the reason this is relevant is because it tells us that Jesus is God. The transcendent and the almighty, eternal creator of the universe walked on this earth. And because Jesus walked on this earth, that means that you can know him. As we look at the Bible and we see what Jesus did, we can know God. 
And so if you think this feeding of the feeding of 5,000 is irrelevant, it cannot be irrelevant because it means that God, the creator of the universe, walked on this earth and that makes it possible for you to know God. And maybe you're tempted, maybe you're one of those people who's tempted to make the signs about you. You're tempted to look at Jesus and look at what Jesus has done and, and you make it about yourself. And maybe that kind of stretches out into your faith more generally. Um, I know that I certainly often spend time and focusing on Jesus and what he's done and my relationship with Jesus. And I lose sight of the fact that he is the eternal creator, almighty God. So for those of us that attempted to make these signs about ourselves, let's let it point us to the fact that he is the one who created the world. Let's let it point us to the fact that Jesus is God. This is the sign that points, Jesus, points to the fact that Jesus is the Son. And finally, it's a sign that points to abundance forever. It's a sign that points to abundance forever. See, this is a sign of Jesus' provision. We've talked about that. We can see Jesus giving and giving and giving. And if you look really carefully at a word in verse 11, I think this is something that really struck me as I was reading this this week. I think so often, when I think about the feeding of the 5,000, I've got ideas in my head, and I think that it's about God giving some needy people some food, giving people that need a meal a meal. And you think this is about God giving people what they need. Of course, that's partly true. But look at this word in verse 11, or look again at verse 11. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. You see, he gave them as much as they wanted, and fundamentally, people need more than they want. And then it goes on, doesn't it? When they all had enough to eat, he said, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered, and they filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. So he gave everybody all they had wanted and then he sent out his disciples to gather in the remnants and everything that, and he brought back 12 whole baskets of bread. And these weren't small baskets, right? These are big baskets and each of the disciples is carrying every basket laden with the bread that is left over after Jesus had given, every, had given everyone everything they wanted. He gives with abundance. I wonder if, and I, yeah, he gives with abundance. I wonder if you have ever heard of something called Huel. You heard of Huel? Huel stands for human fuel. It's very romantic. And basically, Huel is a powder that claims to be nutritionally perfect. It claims to be absolutely everything that humans need. Right? And what it is, is a beige powder. You put it in a bottle, you fill the bottle with water, and you shake it up a little bit, and you have like a creamy, pasty drink that doesn't taste very nice, like a bit like oats and maybe flavoured with a bit of chocolate. And it claims to be everything you need. Right? Now, God, if that is everything we need, <laughs> I don't know where to go with this, if that is absolutely everything we need, I don't want to live in a world where I only get what I need. Right? I don't want to live in a world where I only get huel three meals a day. I don't want to have to eat pasty, white, oat stuff all the time. And God gives us so much more than we need, doesn't he? He doesn't just give us fuel. He gives us food. And he gives us a variety of foods with different colours and textures and tastes and aromas so that we can eat and enjoy and share together. He doesn't just give us like a functional food plant that props up the food chain. It's not just grass. There's 
there's plants and flowers and animals and trees brimming with diversity and life. He doesn't just give us the water that we need. There's streams and there's rivers and there's waterfalls and there's oceans as God gives abundantly through creation. And it goes beyond food and creation, doesn't it? It goes, goes into relationships. He doesn't just give us transactional, person-to-person relationships where we give what we need and then we take what we need. No, he gives us relationships where we can laugh and we can share and we can enjoy time together. We can love each other. We can argue and we can fight and we can make up. He gives us relationships. He gives us so much more than we need. God's provision is abundant and this sign points to that abundance as we see those 12 baskets being lugged back by the disciples. And it's worth saying at this point that the provision of abundance doesn't always mean we get what we want. It is possible to hold the abundant provision of Jesus and the fact that many people suffer for a lack of things in tension. And that's because fundamentally what we want and what we need or what we feel we need isn't always the thing that's best for us. We said at the beginning that one of the ways we might miss a sign is by making it the most important thing. By looking, at the, by looking so much at the thing that's happening, we miss where we're pointing. This is where the crowd end up in verses 14 and 15. Let's read with me. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So they see the sign and they say, surely this man is the one that's prophet. prophet. Surely this is the guy that's been promised to us. And, and to a large extent, they're right. You see, they see that this man must be something greater. They see what he's doing and they say it must be something greater. And then they say, we need him to be king. We need him to be king now. We want him to be the one that rules over us. We want him to take down the Roman Empire. Because if he's king, then we can be rich and we can be successful and we can be famous and we'll stop struggling under Roman rule and we'll have our own king who's good for us. You see, they see the sign and they get so obsessed with the sign and they see some good of it, but they want it all now. And what they're missing is that there is so much more to come. You see this sign, as we see again those 12 baskets coming, this is a sign that God is providing. He's providing abundantly today, but he's providing abundantly for eternity. And there is so much more to come. Because look at Jesus' response. When they say we want to make him king, they threaten to make him king by force, takes himself away. He takes himself away because the time has not yet come for Jesus to be king. And that is because there is so much more to come. He has so much work to do. Because Jesus doesn't just give us life on this earth. He doesn't just give us things to enjoy our time on this earth. He gives us life for eternity. And so as he gives this bread so abundantly, he's saying, come to me and you will never go hungry. He actually says that just over the page. In verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And the reason why you can come to Jesus and never go hungry is because it's not time for him to be king in this passage because his coronation day will come. One day he will be king, but he's not going to be made king by the Israelite people and his coronation ceremony is not going to be on a throne with with a fanfare. His coronation ceremony is going to be on the cross. There will come a day where Jesus will go to the cross and when he dies on the cross, he will die the death 
that everybody deserves. And that means that when you look to Jesus, if you are trusting in Jesus, there will come a time when you come face to face with God. And Jesus will have provided everything you need. Because God will look at you and he will say, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. And that is the provision that God promises for eternity. So as we look at this sign and we see the abundance of the provision, as we see the bread being gathered up by the disciples, we see a promise for the future where God will continue to provide for eternity. So this is a sign pointing to abundance forever. And so I wonder which of those three things we outlined at the beginning you find yourself tempted to. I wonder whether you find yourself tempted to think that Jesus is irrelevant. I wonder whether you find yourself pointing signs to yourself and you make your faith about your experience. Or I wonder whether you find yourself looking at signs and getting so excited for the signs that you just lose sight of the God and Jesus who have provided it for you. Wherever you are on that spectrum, let's look at this sign, this sign of feeding so many people, seven, ten, five thousand people. And we see that it's a sign that points to human limitation. It's a sign that points to Jesus as the Son. And it's a sign that points to abundance forever. Let me pray, and then we're going to sing a few more songs. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you sent Jesus so that we can know you. Um, We thank you so much that you sent Jesus so that we can see something of you. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at him, as we read your word, as we think about this, as we go away, we would see the sign and where it is pointing. And Lord, we would see that it is pointing to the glory of Jesus. And we would see that it is pointing to an abundant eternity with you. And Lord, we pray that we would take that with us this week, that we would know that and we would love Jesus more as a result. In his name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and sing two songs now. The first one is praising God for everything he has done. Praising God that he is the one who provides, provides abundantly forever. And then the second one is a song called Be Thou My Vision. We're fixing our eyes on the thing that Jesus is pointing to. Let's stand if you'd like and we'll sing. <laughs>